0: Welcome. This is the skins podcast produced by the facade tectonics Institute with invited industry thought leaders. We take on all things building skin. This podcast is part of a series for the 2023 calendar year focused on what equity looks like in the physical form of a building. I am your host, Damali Lawrence, an architect at Perkins and Well. Our guest today is Dwayne Smith-Alexander, an architectural designer at Urban Architectural Initiatives, also known as UAI, in New York City. Today, Dwayne will be speaking with us about facades as instant landmarks for UAI's projects for the Brotherhood Sister Soul. The project, a community center in Harlem, New York, has Become a beacon in the neighborhood, further facilitating the work that Brotherhood Sister Soul has been doing for years. We will hear how Duane and UAI practices design that facilitates equity in the built form. Thank you, Duane, for being with us today. We appreciate your time and your voice. Thank you for having me. So, Duane, can you tell us a bit about yourself, UAI, and how UAI won the Brotherhood Sister Soul project?
1: I'm an architectural designer based in New York City. Uh, I've been working with UAI. Urban Architectural Initiatives for the, almost 11 years now. So it's been a very long journey with the firm. So the way that we were awarded the project was that, from my understanding, Urban Architectural Initiatives did work with the Brotherhood Sister Soul about 17 to 18 uh, years prior to us being awarded designing uh, the new uh, community center. So that relationship essentially was what carried over into us being able to actually design and essentially uh, administer construction on the new community center.
0: So, what was the impetus behind Brotherhood Sister Soul choosing to do this project at this time? Were their facilities being stretched thin? Did they need? Do they need more space simply to to go ahead and continue facilitating their work in the community? Do they give you like their why reason and? Behind that, what was UA, UAI's reason for moving forward with this project?
1: Yes, that's exactly what it was. Essentially, when I was placed task onto this project, uh, one of the main uh, driving factors of one, one of the client actually wanting to do this project was the fact that uh, they had essentially outgrown their building. They were initially operating out of a brownstone, and that brownstone although it served uh, so many memories for the organization. And I can't speak on their behalf. From what I saw was just uh, uh, they needed certain essentials that required space uh, and programming that required, uh, you know, just additional square footage. So I think the main or driving factor of the organization wanting to actually do this was to essentially get a new community center, a new space, uh, and more space. And I think that uh, UAI's uh, role in all this was to be able to design something that that provided the organization with the space that they needed, but also to design something that represented the organization and what they represent in the community and the members that they serve and the staff. Uh, so it was more than just about square footage. It was about uh, designing... A, essentially a headquarters, a new home for individuals who are black, brown, Latinx, uh, to feel that they can come and be within a space um, that obviously serves and has the functional pragmatic uses, but also also at the same time uh, has the aesthetic and the, essentially that that home feeling uh, that anyone would, would get. So it was very, we had to tailor it to their organization uh, while providing the functional aspect of it of it as well. So obviously, you know, designing in New York City, uh, you're always faced with the issue of, you know, trying to fit, you know, an elephant into a Porsche, uh, for lack of a better term. So that's, the design process had a lot of, it was a lot of that, being able to like see spaces differently and, and give the organization and the client the best possible space that they could use.
0: Great. And picking up on your comment about designing a home for them. So you're right, New York, you know, we we work in tight constraints, right? But we also have to look at the disparities between between different ethnic groups and between different races. And so when you're talking about designing a home, in terms of the manifestation of equity within the physical form for a brotherhood of sister soul, how did that carry through? How did you guys look at their need and say, let's make this an equitable space for the population that it's serving. And in that, was sustainability considered as part of the design, whether it's resilience of materials or in terms of making sure that there was longevity to how the space performed for the client? Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I think one of the ways that we had an implication or that we Uh, input equity into the design is basically seeing spaces differently. Uh, A lot of spaces that were initially programmed for one sole purpose became uh, programs that or program spaces that were essentially turned into flex spaces. So having uh, maybe a room that was just uh, a music studio now be changed to a technology room so that this way, uh, Just different variations of programs can happen within that space at different times. So a lot of spaces in this particular community center that were essentially primarily uh, made for one particular purpose were then repurposed to be a little bit more flexed and multifaceted, so to speak. So, you know, not just boxing in particular members into one space because they like art or uh, boxing in particular members into one space because they like to create music, but essentially having a collaborative effort through design and then also through the actual usage uh, of the spaces. Okay,
0: and so zooming out from inside to outside right this is a podcast about skins and so the brotherhood sister soul building stands out on the block right and michael kimmelman of the new york Times writes that shatimi that's tony shatimi your boss described the building as a half closed hand can you describe the skin for our listeners um and its context so that they get a, a visual idea of what the facade actually does for the for the user and, and how they kind of interact with that from the outside of the building.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So first and foremost, uh, I remember uh, vividly in one of the very first meetings that the client uh, said that they wanted something that was bold, something that was vivacious, something that really represented the character of the organization and the members, the users of the space. So I think the comment that was made was that the facade of the building represents a a half-closed hand. And I think that the design of that comment was based on the gesture, the architectural gesture that we have at the particular facade. It's very bold, it's very vivacious, and it also has a a protecting feel, almost like a shield, but then also the half-closed hand where it's also reaching out into the community. So if you're standing in front of the space and you look up, you can see that the belly of the facade uh, it moves outward as the trajectory goes upward. If that makes any sense, and so uh, we wanted the facade to be at the same, be somewhat uh, of a shield that was that would represent uh, protecting the inhabitants of this uh, of the users of the space inside, but also uh, something that was open and something that reaches out into the community. So I think those that gesture alone almost has two symbolic uh, meanings to it um, from an architectural standpoint and symbolic standpoint.
0: When we're talking about that, this specific part of the facade, we're we're talking about the facade that faces the street front, right? When you turn the corner of the building, since it's pretty much next to an empty lot, that's a very flat, I would say almost inactive facade, right? It's flat. Is Is that because You guys consider the space adjacent to the lot so that it's more of a community outdoor space?
1: So when you're standing in front of the facade, you can see that the movement and the gesture of the movement of the facade, it actually scales back, uh, especially as you get closer to the Thumb Garden. And one of the reasons why we did that is because uh, relief spaces are extremely rare in New York City and it would be a disservice to the community. And the users of the space to try and create something in a particular space where uh, there's a there's something that's so rare it's almost like a gem. right? so, when you have a green thumb garden or a space where individuals can just come and get away from you know the concrete jungle, the hustle and bustle, and just essentially the monotony of having building after building, uh, we tried to create uh, as little as possible. In those particular spaces and that's what we essentially did with this green thumb garden uh, and sometimes nature is good for design and you don't have to really do anything to it so i think if you're standing in this garden and you're experiencing it as a relief space we have this tan ethos that essentially uh, plays into just the that natural feeling of the space and then as a pedestrian walking that space when you have something uh, as bold and vivacious as this particular design, uh, especially on the front facade, uh, you don't necessarily have to carry that around to the side, especially when you have this, uh, beautiful, uh, relief space. So I think that, uh, we don't really see it as plain. It's just, you know, us responding to the environment and just designing according to with what, uh, the context and the site gave us.
0: No, that's good, right? Because I think a lot of times, you know, as architects, designers, we we love to put as much as we can into it, thinking that we are really giving to the user, where sometimes it's good to just scale down, scale back, and say, let this page, let this pay space be that relief, let the facade kind of fall back. And maybe the the true facade, it is the actual green space and and the plants and the nature. And then as it becomes more facing, front facing for the street, it's much more active. Pulling from that in terms of the materials that actually face the street, the limestone panels, the channel glazing, the reclaimed brownstone, why was that so important in terms of use of materials on this particular building?
1: Well, that was very important because first and foremost, we could go material by material. So starting with uh, having the GFRC panels that has that limestone uh, feel to it. So it's essentially essentially two reasons. Uh, The first reason being that uh, early on in the design, uh, there was, and this is prior to to me being there, there was essentially a uh, design aesthetic or gesture of wanting to connect with uh, the motherland, right? So uh, <clears throat> connecting with uh, you know uh, some East African structures that were in earlier precedence. I think secondly was the fact that uh, Harlem is known for its tan and limestone brick, right? And just a variation of brick altogether. So essentially playing into the context of the street, uh, if you walk around Harlem or Manhattan in that particular area in the Hamilton Heights section, It's very colorful. You have different brownstones, you have different scaled or sized buildings, and essentially just even just the color variation is extremely important. So we didn't want to come with, uh, you know, a steel or something that was a bit more modern in the particular GFRC uh, panels. We wanted that to relate more with the context of Harlem. Now, moving to the channel glass, uh, the reason why we had the channel glass is for two reasons, looking outside and, and also looking in. So both are very important. Both experiences are extremely important. So looking from the outside, I think the channel glass is really what brings the the, the modernity or the modern feel to the, the front facade, particularly. And I think that in the front facade, it plays almost as an anchor to the movement that's happening. So it's active uh but it doesn't have all this the angles and the the variation of of uh of slope by floor uh as the gfrc panels uh uh, do so when you look at that particular area it helps to anchor in that movement that's moving from the uh from the east of the building to the west right so that the channel glass plays as as as, a, as an act of modernity on the front facade, and then also inside. Uh, I think one of the experiences that we really wanted to grasp is to be able to have the experience of light come into the building, but not be taken away from the hustling bustle that goes on on the street. So essentially, when you're sitting behind in a room behind that channel glass, you get to experience, you know, knowing what time of day is right you get to experience the sunlight coming in but essentially it has this opaque frizzled feel where you're not necessarily you're not necessarily able to look out outside whatever's happening on the street and you can just actually be in the room and experience the room for itself and obviously the interior designer should be in and just uai period did a fantastic job at designing the spaces so that the insides just beautiful to be within and you could just be kept within the room and experience the room for what it is and as far as the brick that we have the reclaimed brick from the old brownstone so this was actually the client's idea to really use the brown the brick from the old brownstone and i think it was many a variation of many different reasons uh first being it's plays as, as a as a symbolic feel to what was and you have a connection to the old building so anyone coming into the building can experience, you know, what the actual building looked like. Cause you don't only have brick, you have uh, some of the ornaments that were on that particular brownstone, right? That's inside of the building itself. So the experience from the outside flips. So when you go inside, that's when you get the vulnerability. That's when you get uh, the essence and the soul of the organization. So uh, as you walk up each facade, I'm, I'm sorry, as you walk up each uh, floor, The main thing that you'll see on just about every floor is the corridor. When you step off the elevator or the stairs is these, you know, these brick, these brick from the old brownstone building. And it's just a fascinating story to see how uh, it translated. And, you know, you kept some of the old in and you put it in with the new. So I think that was a large, large portion of why uh, that was uh, also incorporated into the building. Got
0: it. And so, just trying to zoom in, but zoom out at the same time. When we talk about all these materials coming together from interior to exterior, exterior to interior, given the budget constraints, right? Because we know all projects have budget constraints, but within the budget budget constraints of the project and what UAI and Brotherhood Sisters sold wanted to achieve with how it was executed so that equity would still be a part of the project. So, you know, typically when we have projects and there's a very large budget, you can spend as you will. But this project had a fairly tight budget. Do you think that what UAI and yourself were trying to provide to Brotherhood, Sister Soul and the users was achieved? Like, Do you think it was executed well? Would you look at this as something as a project that could potentially go into a neighborhood that had more money?
1: Absolutely. I think so many issues were addressed from an organizational perspective and it trickled down to everyone that was involved within the project. Uh, As designers, one of the things that we tried to do was use uh, local material as much as we could and really uh, provide something that still kept the character and the charm. I know that a lot of individuals who are local to the community actually worked on this particular project, giving a sense of uh, input from the community itself, from the inhabitants, individuals who live even on the same street of the community center. So there were, I think there were just a number of ways, uh, obviously, um, that I'm aware of and unaware of that the project was, uh, was made feasible and that you know, we use, anywhere we could use local uh, sourced material or local help, I think that was intrinsic to the success of the project. And just the community outreach, uh, I think that was one of the biggest facets of the project, like being able to actually bring the community into the project and having them uh, work upon it, both from a material perspective, material sourced, as well as uh, individuals working uh, on the project. So
0: looking forward into projects that you're potentially working on right now or future projects, do you think that not just working with the client, but the persons who are doing the execution of our work, and I'm talking about our contractors, our fabricators, down to the persons that are actually physically on site doing the labor, do you think that you'd be able to make sure that they're fully invested in the equity of how projects are ex- executed, whether it's a project that's very well-funded or a project that has a tight budget constraint. And, and I'm saying that because I, as we, as designers architects, continue to grow within our profession and seeing how that we're responding to what's happening in the world right now, where we're really saying, okay, we're not just building for people that have X amount of dollars, but we're building for everyone. Do you think that you can start to facilitate that in your future work, working with people to make sure they're fully invested in equity, regardless of how much the budget is?
1: Yes, absolutely. It's almost two sides to the coin. I think first and foremost is, you know, getting good people and then also I think one thing that... I remember being prevalent during the project was that uh, there were signs up letting the, you know, the workers know how important their contribution and their work was to the project. So I think first and foremost, having these individuals who uh, work on the project know that, you know, that their work is appreciated. I think that's one aspect, and I think secondly, from uh, from the point of working with consultants or subconsultants, I think it's. Uh, you know, coordination, if it's one thing that I've learned on this project was coordination is extremely key. You know, being able to communicate and coordinate uh, design, architectural design, effectively and clearly. Uh, first with internally, this is something that I've learned from from my boss and from my, my firm. And then also having that same level of coordination and communication spawn out to your subconsultants and then essentially the contractor and everyone underneath the contractor. I think it's extremely important to essentially have two sides of those coins at the forefront. I think there needs to be a certain level of appreciation and communicated information about what the project means to the community. And then secondly, I think that from a more finite how-to-build perspective, I also think that there needs to be a certain level of just across-the-board coordination.
0: No, this is good. I think, you know, as we ourselves continue to develop as professionals, we need to just remember who we're building for, why we're doing it, and why it's important. But I really appreciated your time today. Everyone should read the article by Michael Kimmelin in the New York Times about this building and what it means to not only Brotherhood, Sister Soul, but to UAI, to you you, Duane, as an architectural designer, and how you're going to work in the future and and now but as we wrap i just want to ask you one last question it's kind of a choose your own adventure can and it you can pick which one you want to answer can you tell us what you're reading or listening to or um can you tell us what is what you think about your skin in relation to skins overall and i don't mean skins the a podcast but building skins right because we're about facade so you can pick which one you want to answer
1: I'll go with the the first one. So tell you about what I'm reading or what I'm listening to. So currently right now, I'll tell you exactly what I'm uh, digesting. That's a better way to put it. So currently right now, I am uh, fully immersed into the world of AI and how it relates to uh, architecture. So a couple of years back, and this is something that I like to do periodically, you know, every two or three years or so, I like to just update myself with new ways to design. I think that you know, designing a building takes anywhere from Designing and, and actually com- completing the construction of a building could take anywhere from uh, three to five years. Right? And I think that within that time, uh, so many things within the industry, uh, particularly architecture, changes. So um, something that I noticed is that when I first was tasked with being a part of the design team for this particular building, the Brotherhood Sister Soul, uh, you know, everything, I was using certain programs that now are considered old. So I am fully uh, immersed into... AI and just pragmatic design and learning how to ask better questions as an architect. Um, obviously, everyone knows that there are certain uh, AI platforms and tools where that can help you design. But I'm at a particular point now where I'm just reading and studying on just so many different apps that can further advance more efficient, sustainable design and how to actually do it. Because so I think, um, although I like sketching, I think that it's just important uh, for an architectural designer or anyone within the field to really continuously advance themselves uh, and learn how to uh, you know use some of these modern tools that could help push the profession forward
0: Great. I feel like we could have a whole other podcast about equity, AI, and design. have many opinions about that, but I'm sure our listeners do as well. So thank you, Duane, for being with us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in on the Facade Tectonic Skins podcast. Be well.